0: Hey friends, my name is Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help Podcast from the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Charles Hodges about his new book, The Christian Counselor's Medical Desk Reference. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest, Dr. Charles Hodges is a family physician. He is a graduate of Indiana School of Medicine and also received an MA in Counseling and MA in Religion from Liberty University. He is the Executive Director of Vision of Hope, a counselor and instructor at Faith Biblical Counseling Ministry, and a Fellow for the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. In addition to being the editor of the book we're talking about today, he is also the author of Good Mood, Bad Mood, Help and Hope for Depression and Bipolar Disorder, and a contributing author of Caring for the Souls of Children. He and his wife, Helen, have four children, 13 grandchildren, and one great granddaughter. Hey there, Dr. Hodges. Thank you so much for joining us for the show today. It's so great to have you back.
1: Well, it's good to be with you. Thanks for asking me.
0: I am looking forward to our conversation today. It is based off of a brand new resource that has just been released called The Christian Counselor's Medical Desk Reference, and that is a mouthful, but it is such a valuable book. I had the chance to preview it and was really blessed by all of the detail that you and your contributing writers have put into this resource. And so I wondered if before we dive into our conversation on counseling, medical issues, If you could give us an overview of this book and explain why you wanted to act as an editor for it.
1: Well, in the year 2000, Dr. Robert Smith published the first edition of the Christian Counselors Medical Desk reference. It was a very valuable resource for a lot of people who read it and used it. As one counselor told me, it took a lot of the fear and uncertainty out of counseling people who would come to the counseling room with medical issues and medical problems and psychiatric problems. He told me that what spurred him on to write the book originally was that he would often speak to counselors and they would say something to the effect, my counselee tells me that I have X diagnosis and that's why I am unable to grow and change. So that's what drove him on to write the book. He hoped that the book would give counselors a tool that would enable them to be helpful to people who were in that situation. But that was 23 years ago, and a good number of people had come to me and encouraged me to Revise it, but the reason why I took it up was because Doc Smith, who's now with the Lord, he while we were in the process of doing the revision, Doc went to be with the Lord and Leona, and he exacted from me a promise to revise it. <laughs> and I knew it was going to be a lot of work, and I wasn't exactly jumping, you know, at the chance. But when he asked me, I agreed. So I, it's a promise. I, I made a promise, and the promise has been kept. The second edition of the Christian Counselors Medical Deaf Reference, we'll just call it the CCMDR from here on, has (laughs) been written to do the same thing that Doc intended uh, to do in the first place. We wanted to get biblical counselors uh, solid information about the medical facts of the problems that complicate the lives of their counselees and which they bring with them into the counseling room. Now, in order to write and revise this book, I decided that we were probably going to cover 20, at least 20 medical problems that end up in uh, being seen in counseling. And I decided early on that, that it wasn't possible for one person to do it all because medicine is way too broad a field for any one of us to be an expert in every portion of medicine. And so I I decided that I would enlist other physicians who were also biblical counselors and nurses and social workers and a fellow who used to be the head of the School of Pharmacy at a major university and put them all together into a group, assigned them chapters and cut the work up. And And I gave the chapters to people who were qualified by their experience and their training to speak into that chapter. And oftentimes people who had lived the problem, folks who had struggled with whatever it was that they were going to talk about. As, as one of the writers wrote about counseling people with medical problems, as he was writing that, he became incredibly ill and went through a really pretty dramatic uh, passage through medical medical treatment. So, I mean, when he was writing about this, he was he could almost do it first person. I assigned them subjects that uh, I, th- I thought they'd do a good job in writing. It took a bit longer to write than we anticipated. And you know, you can there was one word can sum up the reason why and it's COVID. You know, the the about the time we started to do the writing and the revisions, COVID broke out. And unfortunately almost all the authors were doctors, which meant that for the majority of us, our attention was was drug away to dealing with the with the epidemic at the time it came. So that slowed us down a, a bit. But the the product exceeded all my hopes. I, I I think this book is, it's a lot better than I ever imagined that it could be. And I think it gives, gives the individual an opportunity to see some things that are very important in medicine and biblical counseling. A couple of things, I would ask the writer to write about a specific subject so he would give a story of a patient, which is not the actual patient, but a bunch of patients lumped together. And so he would give that story and then he would give what the current medical literature said about the problem, give an up-to-date explanation of what medicine says about it, and then give a biblical counseling approach to dealing with the individual who had had the problem. And that was how I told them to write. Another thing I told them, which I got from Amy Baker, dear friend, when she enlisted me to write the self-harm chapter in the Caring for the Souls of Children, which is a book which was sort of organized in the same way mine was. And she told us as writers That as we wrote, we should look at the problem and the individual, look at the individual as a sufferer first and as a sinner second, which for me, when I wrote that chapter, sort of changed the tone of the chapter. And I think changed the tone of all the chapters that are in this book as well. So that, that was our approach. That's the goal. And I think that's what the book does.
0: Overall, I thought it was just a really rich resource, and I'm so excited to be able to help you to introduce it to the biblical counseling community here on this podcast. And I also really enjoyed the fact that I think for those of us who are familiar with you and your ministry, and I know I have heard you speak live on several occasions, it's it was no surprise to me that... Basically, right out of the gate, the first chapter addresses something that you've actually spoken about at IBCD, which is what's medical about mental illness? And this is a hot topic, not just for biblical counselors, but also even within the field of psychology itself. And so I wondered if you could share your three general guidelines that have helped you to deal with what you call the myriad of DSM-5 labels that you often encounter.
1: Well, I agree with you. The question of which part of the DSM-5 group of diagnoses represent medical illness versus inconvenient behavior, behavior which is inconvenient and sometimes disagreeable, is Is a roaring controversy outside the church. You don't have to find people who are arguing about this. You don't have to go to a biblical counseling convention. You can just open up Twitter and see people talking in really very unkind terms (laughs) about psychiatry and the medicines that are available and the diagnoses that are made. So, you know, this is a controversy that runs through our society. And I think it's very important for us as counselors to have a framework to deal with the labels as they arrive. Because most people who come to counseling, the old hack that I always say is that when I started practicing medicine, I gave first opinions and then I would send people away for second opinions. And now most of the patients I see have already visited Dr. Google and gotten their first opinion. And then they come to me and I get to give the second opinion about what I think about what they, they did in their research. Well, most folks who come to biblical counseling, I would say the greater majority of them have already made their way through some aspect of the medical health care delivery system before they ever get to us. And they often come with labels. So what are we supposed to think about it? You know, like, hello, doctor, I have bipolar disorder, and that's the reason why this counseling is going to be futile, because I can't possibly change. Is that how we look at this? So early on, as I was in the process of of doing biblical counseling, I came down to three ideas. And the first one was, I'll never call anything a disease if the Bible says it's sin. The one thing I can say is that scripture never changes. So whatever it says about life is true. It was true 2,000 years ago. It is true today medicine on the other hand changes about every five minutes it's probably not quite that quick but it is it's pretty fast Medical textbooks when published are out of date before the ink dries so you know when I say that then if I was going to pick between two sources to believe if the Bible says it's a sin and medicine like today drug addiction is a disease, Well, you know, the Bible says that we shouldn't get drunk and that getting drunk is a sin in Ephesians 5. And and from that, I've always said that we are not, as Christians, supposed to give control of our bodies over to substances such as alcohol and so on and so forth. And uh, when we do, the scripture identifies it as sin. Now, if I identify it as a disease and say that the individual's drunkenness is disease then it's sort of as a physician puts me in the spot where I'm supposed to send them to medical health care and of course medical health care is miserable you know if you look at the record of substance abuse treatment in the United States today it remains miserable and it will always be miserable until somebody gets to the heart of the problem but on the other hand if you identify that behavior as what the Bible says, which is sin, you have a completely different option. That option is repentance. The individual can repent and find the grace of God to change their life. Then it becomes something that the individual can make a choice about. So I'll never call anything a disease if the Bible calls it sin. The second thing I tell people is I'll never call anything sin unless the Scripture clearly does. Bright, easily understood definition of sin, like the Big Ten. You know, it's like I'm and I'm I'm not gonna say that if you want to wear bell bottom pants or have long hair that is guy, that somehow that's sin. That's a social convention. I'm not gonna identify anybody's social convention as a sin, unless the scripture identifies it as sin. That keeps us from uh, developing long lists of rules like the Pharisees had when Jesus arrived. So I'll never call anything in sin unless the Bible clearly does. And then as I'm trying to decide whether I think the label that the counselee brings with them is a illness or not, and whether it has some impact that ought to be factored in or not, I want to know what the pathology is underlying what this disease is supposed to be. I'd like to be able to see what the difference is at the cell level that results in the difference in the behavior. And that's what I look for. And those are the three things that I've been telling people for years. It is the ability to diagnose the strep throat. I can, in eight minutes, I can stick a swab down somebody's throat in eight minutes, I know what they have. On the other hand, when you're looking at something like depression or anxiety, you have this long list of symptoms and there is no validated test like a strep screen that can make the difference. So those were my three parts to make up a framework.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for helping us to think more about that. And of course, I want to preface this conversation by saying that you go into much more detail in the book on these issues. I also appreciate that you address the sufficiency of the scriptures early on in the book, helping readers to clarify what is and what isn't meant by the word sufficiency, particularly when it comes to counseling medical issues. So, can you explain how you define the sufficiency of the Scriptures and why it's important to think carefully about the dynamic between this doctrine and medicine?
1: Well, if you ask me what doctrine comes under the most fire with regard to biblical counseling, my answer would be the sufficiency of Scripture, because upon it turns the question about whether or not we as individual biblical counselors on a given Monday night have anything useful to say to someone who has OCD or bipolar disorder. Do the scriptures sufficiently offer any help to anything that's complicated? A lot of folks will say that biblical counseling is great for mild depression and and minor worry. After that, when things start getting a little bit harder, you really need a trained counselor, you know, who's licensed and who has greater training than you can get, you know, for, for biblical counseling. And the question then becomes, well, what does the Bible have to say about difficult problems? So, sufficiency, probably the defining verse that the people refer to most, is that passage in Peter where he says that we've been given all things required for life and godliness through a true knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And of course, that true knowledge comes from the scriptures and hence, We say that the scriptures are sufficient for all matters of faith and practice in the Christian life. Now, the question, of course, becomes, you know, what does uh, sufficiency not mean? We'll start there. That makes it a little easier. It doesn't mean that every problem in life has a solution in scripture. There is nothing in the Bible that tells you how to, in detail, Take care of your child who has a strep throat. You will not find that a shot of penicillin for most people will really make that better because it's never never said there. But that doesn't mean that scripture is insufficient in the matter. I think that the one person that I've enjoyed most reading is a fellow, Dr. John Frame, who's written a lot and taught for RTS, for Reformed Theological Seminary, and has said much about this. And I'm going to quote him for just a little bit because it, he really puts us in a good, in a good light. Christian and I, and I quote, Christians sometimes say that scripture is sufficient for religion or preaching or theology. But not for auto repairs, plumbing, animal husbandry, dentistry, and the like. I really wish this is editorial. I really wish he would put medicine in there because it really belongs in the line. And quoting, and of course, many argue that it is not sufficient for science, philosophy, or even ethics. And that is to miss an important point. Certainly, scripture contains more specific information relevant to theology than to dentistry. But sufficiency in the present context is not sufficiency of specific information, but sufficiency of divine words. Scripture contains divine words sufficient for all of life. And that's a really important point. It has all the divine words that the plumber needs, all the divine words that the theologian needs. So it is just as sufficient for plumbing as it is for theology, and I would also add, as it is for medicine. And in that sense, it's sufficient for science and ethics as well. Scripture is sufficient uh, for medicine. It has The Bible has all the words the doctor needs in order to practice medicine in a way that glorifies and honors God. It will not tell us how to build an MRI machine. You know, it won't tell us how to make a brain scanner, but it will tell us how to use that brain scanner ethically. Then the words for practicing medicine are very sufficient. So then the question is, or what words would apply? So let's go back to the strep throat. What words apply to the strep throat? It it comes a uh, simile. I spent a little time trying to puzzle out whether I thought what I'm going to say next was a simile or a metaphor. <laughs> and I, I finally came down to it's a simile. And it's uh, Jesus in Mark chapter two, where he says, the sick need a physician, not those who are well. And then he goes on when he says, he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus is saying, this, the sick person is like the unrighteous person. The sick person needs a doctor. The unrighteous person needs repentance. They need Jesus. The simile, that, you know, if you take both have parts of the simile, this, the first part has to be true. And so what has Jesus said? Well, we need doctors. There are going to be days and times and places that we're just going to need physicians because God didn't choose to put the instructions for treating strep throats into the gospel of Mark. He instead told us to go see the doctor. And those words are sufficient to deal with that problem in a godly way. Not specific, but absolutely sufficient. So that's an an important aspect that Frame lays out for us. Now, there are a couple of things that I think are important in the issue of sufficiency. There are three aspects to dealing, I think, with sufficiency in a reasonable way. You know, the first thing we're going to say is that uh, the the scripture contains sufficient words for all matters of our life and living so that we can live in a godly, holy way. At the same time, God gives us things that fall under the term common grace. And a considerable portion of what is medical research, as uh, one old preacher, when I asked him if at the time, if he ever saw it happen to Christians, you know, it's sort of like I, what I was aiming for was for him to tell me that people who led godly lives would be protected from this awful thing that would happen. And he sort of thought a moment, smiled at me and says, it rains on the just and the unjust alike. And I said, you know, he's right. And that is common grace. That's the a very simple definition of common grace. Medicine is a matter of that. But I always try to point out that there are some things that are more gracious than others in medicine. Some things are really valuable, common grace issues, and then some things are not just not very helpful at all. As Keith Lambert once said, our biblical counseling will be impoverished if we don't make use of the common grace gifts that God provides. But at the same time, there is a limiting factor. And that limiting factor in looking at the common grace things that medicine gives us is the noetic effect of sin we don't think as well as we could and we don't do as much as we would have had Adam and Eve not made that choice and brought that Romans 5.12 curse of sin into the human race. It changed us all. As a result, John Frame would say that there are no absolute facts as far as we're concerned because everything that we say is an interpretation of what we see or what we read or what we hear. and We interpret it through our minds, which are affected by sin. Our biases affect them. I encourage people, if you're wanting to know whether or not research is very useful or valuable, you should read or listen to Science Fictions by Stuart Ritchie. It's an amazing, a good look at how... People uh, manipulate their research in order to get it published, in order to arrive at certain conclusions. And if you pick down into it very carefully, you see where they went wrong. And often you can read about research papers getting recalled and, and pulled off publication because somebody figured out that they had cheated manipulating the facts. All facts are interpretive facts. They are interpreted by either the researcher, and that's true in in medicine and true in life. And we interpret them based on our presuppositions. We were out West this summer, went to Uh, Mount Rushmore and the Needles Drive around Mount Rushmore. And then we were going to Yellowstone, but it rained and they closed the park on the day we were supposed to drive in. As we were driving around the Needles Drive, which is an amazing drive near Mount Rushmore up in the Black Hills, we would see these uh, rock formations, which looked like acres of needles. The rocks had been washed away uh, and they would come to a point at the top. Now, you can interpret those those facts. You're just looking at it. But you can, you can come away with two different interpretations. The evolutionist, you know, who thinks that the world is billions and billions of years old, looks at that and sees a little bitty trickle of water over a long period of time. Now, me, the younger Earth creationist, as I drive by them, I look up and I go, big flood. If you want to know how that got there, a big flood. Both of us interpret what we see, but we interpret it in an entirely different way. So that's the care you have to take when you're starting to say that this maneuver in medicine is a common grace issue. You have to keep in mind that the facts are interpreted by people who have the noetic effect of sin in their lives. So we interpret things from our own world view. And when I look at research, I try to give it an A, B, C, D, or F category as to how solid I think it is. There's some research papers I look at and I go that's that's a rocket. They wrote it well, the numbers are well done. And then there's some that I say, well, it's not so great, but it, it deserves a C. It probably does speak to something that's interesting. And then there are others I look at and say, well, that's junk. And you know you have to look at research work in just that way. you know so if you're looking to see what part of medicine falls under common grace, you have to ha- take some care when you look at the research. And if you're not a medical person, then you need to put, find someone in your life who is, who you can ask, is this research good? Is this an A grade research or is it a D grade research? How does that play out for us as biblical counselors? Well, you know, it it plays out in things like OCD, where you have some people sitting over here who will say this is all a spiritual issue. There's nothing really medical about it. Um, And then you have people over here on the other side of life who are saying this is all medical. There's nothing spiritual about it. And, you know, as I look at OCD, I can tell you that if you fall in either direction, you won't be right. It's probably someplace down in the middle. So as you try to uh, look at sufficiency and medicine, that I think is an import, another part of an important approach.
0: I also wanted to kind of put some pressure on you to answer a question for a chapter you didn't write, which was, I thought, really helpful because it was a chapter that talks about when should a biblical counselor consult a doctor?
1: Well, Martha Peace has written a really good chapter there, and I encourage everybody to get it and read it. But... Uh, What I remember her writing and what I would tell people myself, I, I would say the first really good reason to have some sort of contact with the physician of a counselee is when that counselee comes to you and they're struggling with worry or depression or some other kind of problem, and they haven't seen a doctor in a long time. You know, that to me, that's a first visit assignment need to see your doctor, get a good physical. I always caution them, you're not to tell the doctor, I'm really not here to get medicine uh, because I'm in counseling. What I'm really here for is my doctor wants to make sure I don't have a medical problem that could contribute to the way I feel and that needs to be fixed. So that's the first good reason. I think anybody who has new onset of depression or anxiety needs a physical. In particular, the people who can't tell me what happened when it started. There's a lot of very good writing has gone on in the last decade since the explosion of Prozac and the changes in the DSM led to the explosion of the diagnosis of depression in the United States. A lot of very good research has gone on which says That probably 90% of people who get labeled with depression really aren't suffering from any specific disease, what they really are suffering from was sadness over loss, they've lost something very important in their life. They evidently haven't been able to come to grip with it philosophically or, or spiritually, and they haven't been able to regain it so they become sad. So that's one side of things. But the other is, is that about 10% of people won't be able to tell you why they've been sad for the last 40 years. Nothing bad happened. Nothing's going on in their life that should make them that way. But they just are that way. That individual certainly needs to see. A physician because the, the incidence of medical ailments that could cause that sadness rises when there isn't a really good reason for them to have it. So that would be a good reason to send them on. I think another good time to consult with the physician who's caring for your patient is when you're counseling and they're not doing very well. They're struggling in some way or another. Martha talks about that in her chapter, a patient who had Significant problems and could benefit from the short term use of some kind of medicine to help her sleep or to calm her, uh, not for a prolonged period, but for a short period of time. Another good t- time in my experience has been um, when I'm seeing a patient who can't stay awake in counseling. You know, they're seeing a physician. They're taking uh, medicine, and that medicine is if they sit down and get quiet for a little bit, they'll pass out. They'll go to sleep. I can, I remember having a patient like that, and I uh, wrote a nice little note to the physician who was caring for them and said, "This patient can't stay awake during counseling. Do you think you might lower the dose just a bit?" And uh, and they did. You know, so that's a, that's a good time when you're seeing something related to the medicine that is either not working well or working poorly, then that's a good time to send the counselee back to the physician and to speak with them about it. I think when you're seeing things in the life of a counselee that the physician may not know, uh, gaining the permission of the counselee to talk to the physician so that you can inform the physician is a good thing. I've had occasions to do that when people were in an episode of mania or were hallucinating. You know, it was that was a really good time for me to be talking to their doctor. So those would be the reasons why I would see that it would be helpful.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah. I, mean, I even had an instance with drug interactions, you know, helping a counselee to keep track of what medicines they're taking and then running them on drug interaction websites <laughs> to kind of help to oversee where there may be some dangers because I have had times where there have been Warning, warning, do not take these things at the same time. And for whatever reason, it fell through the cracks at the doctor's office. And that needed to be immediately addressed with the doctor. So that would maybe be another reason why, you know, just having that awareness and even sometimes with our counselees who are on a variety of medications, helping them to be wise consumers and advocate for themselves with regards to the medications, I think is important.
1: I've said on many occasions that long ago, as patients come to the office and tell me that they have a new symptom or a new problem, that I quit looking for what new disease they might have first. The first thing I want to know is what medicine are you taking and which one of them has this side effect? Because a lot of complaints can get filtered out to that at times.
0: Well, we have, uh, are going to try to hit a few of the chapters that you've written in this book. There are a number of issues that you address and the other authors as well. But I wanted to be kind and, and just ask you about the ones that you wrote. In the past, we have talked about depression and bipolar disorder. We have a whole other podcast conversation on that. And if you are interested in hearing Dr. Hodges talk more about that, which he does in this book, We're not going to talk about depression and bipolar disorder any more than we already have, but I will link to that previous podcast conversation in the show notes. For this conversation, what we have not discussed on the show at all with any other guest is the problem of obsessive compulsive disorder. And so obviously we can't go into a whole lot of detail like you do in the book, but I wonder if you could help us think about the body-soul dynamic of this problem and where a counselor might begin in their first sessions with someone who, was struggling in this way?
1: Well, I think the important thing about obsessive compulsive disorder is there, there are several things. Uh, there isn't an absolute easily done test like the strep screen that says, bingo, you have OCD, but it is an exhaustingly repetitive thing in the lives of those who are affected by it. They do the same things, they do them much the same ways and for much the same reasons. So you you have a problem which is made up of individuals who have obsessive thinking, that they have serious trouble stopping. And then in order to compensate for it, they have generally fallen into strategies which give them something to do at the time when they're struggling with the thinking uh, doesn't really relieve them so much. It's just, I need to do this or else. It's sort of like the counselee that I had that was convinced that if she didn't get up and check the stove 50 times before she went to bed, that she will have left it on and the flames will get blown out and then the family will be suffocated by gas or or something like that, you know. And, and if she doesn't, she can't tolerate not doing the compulsions. You know, the question is is how much, as I as I raised a bit earlier, is how much of this is medical and how much of it is it? simply learned behavior. Well, you know, what, what I can say is that there is significant evidence which is generally approached with MRI or PET scanning, brain scans, functional brain scans, which would indicate that these individuals, their parts of their brain are operating differently than everybody else in life who can quit thinking about something just by moving on. You know, I don't have to think about this the rest of the day. I don't, I don't have to take up all my time with it. And the problem that comes in biblical counseling circles is that there are, that's Matthew 6 and Philippians 4 and our, our commands not to worry. And this certainly looks like worry, OCD does, uh, you know, you are got your thinking focused on, on something and you're thinking about it all the time and it's going to be a bad outcome if I don't do whatever the ritual is. I think the important aspect of it from me as a physician's viewpoint is that the brain scans that have been done in research on individuals with OCD are different than normals. And an even better point is that individuals who go into counseling and actually do change their behavior and work on changing their thinking, those brain scans will start reverting back towards normal. Those kind of brain scans don't prove that this is absolutely a medical problem although I think it is I think it I think it has a medical component I also don't think that treating it med- medically alone is very useful just putting people on medicine who have OCD does not result in them doing well they really do need counseling now is it helpful how is it helpful for an individual to know that if you, if I have OCD, that there is something different in my brain that results in me being unable to get rid of this thought. Well, part of the reason is is because usually their thoughts are pretty horrible, horrible to them. And I, as I as I pointed out in uh, when I was helping one individual with it, I pointed out to the court. That uh, they needn't fear that this person would do what they're obsessing about because what all the behavior that goes after the thought is what they're doing because they fear doing it. It isn't because they want to do it. They fear doing it. That's what drives their behavior. Now, that's useful if the counselee has the thought they can't get out of their head and it's really distressing and disturbing for them to know that it is an effect of the fall. Their brain operates differently; it doesn't operate like everybody else's, and the origin of that difference comes from what happened to all of us when Adam and Eve made that choice and entered and death followed it. That I think is one helpful thing. As I've often had counselees say, this thought comes from my Romans 5:12 broken brain that gives them a response to it besides washing their hands a thousand times or doing other useless things in response to their obsession. I think the most important thing that needs to be done quickly is to change the goal. The goal for someone who has OCD is safety. That one word, boom, I need to be safe. My family needs to be safe. My kids need to be safe. Everybody else needs to be safe. And therefore, I have to do all these crazy things in order to be safe. And to make a long story short, the goal has to change is I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to be safe. I love God more than I want to be safe. And as a result, I want to do what the Bible tells me I ought to do when the Bible tells me I ought to do it more than I want to be safe. And I wanna serve other people more than I want to be safe. That's That shift has to occur in their thinking The other things that need to occur is that they need to learn to identify truth from error in their thinking, and they'll need people to stand alongside them and help them to do that initially. Then they need to learn that they have a choice in the behaviors that they choose. And, you know, they're not obligated to sweep the floor for four hours a day. I had one lady who swept her floors four hours a day. There was no electric sweeper made on the face of the earth that could tolerate what she was doing. She, She would burn right through them. But what she didn't understand was what Paul said in Romans 6, 16, know you not to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are, whether sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness, we get to choose. And as one writer who isn't particularly a a Christian quotes Galatians 6 and, and says, what you sow is what you reap. If you practice OCD, you get better at OCD. Quite on the other hand, if you choose not to, eventually you get better at not doing it. And then, I, you know, I think important for the person who has intrusive thinking and OCD is perseverance. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, being steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, uh, sticking with the process of change. And in counseling, I've seen individuals who've had significant struggles with OCD do very well as they changed what their goal was in life.
0: Another topic that we have yet to address on this podcast before is the problem of schizophrenia. But it may be an issue that some of our listeners encounter in the counseling room as they seek to provide one another care. I appreciate that you recognize all we presently don't know about this problem as you write about it in the book, but you do offer some helpful clarity on why diagnoses of schizophrenia seem to be on the rise. And so I wonder if you could talk about ways that people are misdiagnosed with schizophrenia.
1: Most psychiatrists avoid trying to diagnose people with schizophrenia because it's a life-changing diagnosis. That goes into your medical record. Your life is changed from that point forward. Either you're going to have problems for the rest of your life or you're going to be explaining why the doctor put that in your chart for the rest of your life. One, One of the two things will happen. You know, if you say, well. Why, why does it get overdiagnosed? Well, the reason why it gets overdiagnosed, I suppose, is because there is no really good single validated test which says, just like the strep's throat, I've swabbed your throat and in eight minutes you're schizophrenic. We can't do that. That doesn't mean there isn't a considerable amount of medical evidence that says this is a medical problem because there is. And I, I spend some time talking about that in the chapter in the book. Part of the reason why people in general are overdiagnosed with all the categories in the DSM-5 is because probably half the people who are making those diagnoses don't abide by the criteria. At least 50% of the people who are diagnosed with DSM-5 diagnoses, according to one researcher, don't have any, don't meet the criteria for any DSM-5 diagnosis. And that's probably because there wasn't careful use of those criteria. And I would say that if you're going to say somebody's schizophrenic, you should meet, you should be very careful to understand what the criteria are and then apply them. So that's one reason more people get diagnosed than perhaps need to. The other thing is, is that as one writer said, psychosis is not the same as schizophrenia. And there are all kinds of reasons for people to hallucinate, which uh, revolve around substance abuse. In our society, I think probably the main culprit that is uh, driving an increase of uh, psychosis and perhaps schizophrenia and bipolar disorder amongst young people is marijuana. You know, the idea that it's really such an irony that We've spent billions of dollars in 30 or 40 years convincing everybody that smoking tobacco is hazardous to your health. But now suddenly we're all supposed to jump up and say, but smoking marijuana is fine. You know, it's, it's it's doesn't cause any trouble, et cetera, so on and so forth. But that's absolute nonsense. Read one article that talked about the number of people who show up in a Southern California emergency room, I think it was in San Diego, psychotic and that the vast majority of them were uh, due to marijuana. So that, I think, is part of another reason why schizophrenia, the diagnoses of schizophrenia and the actual disease numbers have risen. I've said elsewhere that over time, I think I've tried to read just about every interesting biography of anybody who, or autobiography of anybody who had schizophrenia and made it through life and wrote about it. And in my reading, I can can say that almost every last one of them smoked pot or used drugs of some sort. So, you know, our society has become much more willing to accept drug use than it was 30 years ago. Hence, I think we see more trouble. I would say that's, probably the reason why it has increased the other aspect is it's a diagnosis of, ex- of exclusion if you're going to make a uh, diagnosis of schizophrenia you, you know the individual young person shows up in the ER this is the first time they've been psychotic or ha- be hallucinating and are not connected to reality you have to exclude every other possible cause before you would say they were schizophrenic so you know so the diagnosis is not easy If you look at marijuana, amphetamines, cocaine, and other substances abuse, that's probably a real major feed for the increased
0: incidence of it. So Dr. Hodges, that being said, for somebody who does come in for counseling with us, and they have been given a label of schizophrenia, what confidence can we have as biblical counselors in our ability to help those who struggle in this way?
1: Well, you know... I have cared for, counseled individuals with schizophrenia down through the years. and I, I think the first most important thing as a biblical counselor is that you need to make sure that the person that you're counseling is in as close to their ability to think normally as is possible. They, they need to be oriented to person, place, and time. If they are hallucinating in your presence, they need to be in medical care at an emergency room or someplace like that because... I've never found trying to counsel people who were hallucinating or had delusions that it ever worked out very well for, you know, to reach any goal in counseling. So make sure they're oriented to person, place, and time. Also make sure that they're there willingly. You know, a lot of people in this situation are coerced by loved ones and relatives to come to counseling. It's sort of like sometimes we see that vision of hope. We see uh, people who've come because their family said that if you don't go, we're not going to speak to you again or do anything for you, et cetera, so on and so forth. You need to make sure that the counsel is there willingly. And then once they are not psychotic, they need counseling that will help them see that even though they have a significant medical problem and it and it is, and that it is a struggle and is at times suffering, that God is going to go with them through this problem. I really think that is an important aspect. I I would tell you that schizophrenics need all kinds of counseling. They need all the same kinds of counseling that we do. And if they're not hallucinating, then you should be pursuing progressive sanctification, dealing with anger, all kinds of, of worry, all kinds of counseling issues that any other person would need but i think the one thing that probably helps them the most is to understand and from romans 8 16 through 18 sense that the the current suffering that we're going through right now will not be you know if we look back you know when we're when we're standing on the streets of gold someday and we look back across the whole of life the things that we suffered will not matter very much compared to the glory that we'll be experiencing as as my friend Caroline Newsheiser say, we don't talk about the glory that we are headed to enough in counseling. So I, I think that's an important thing that we can do for the individual. Also, they need to know that the Holy Spirit is in the process of interceding for them. The believer who has schizophrenia, I, I always say I love Romans 8:26 because it says that the Holy Spirit intercedes with us for us at times. And we're not even smart enough to know what to ask for. And he is there at the throne of grace, currently asking God for what we need. And then I think the other aspect is is that they will be healed. I'm not a faith healer. Don't, Don't mistake me. But I know that God could choose to heal individuals who struggle here in life and sometimes does. But I also know that when we see Jesus, we're going to be like him and that when we come into his presence, either by death or when he returns, that we'll be like him. And so our inadequacies, our physical faults and struggles, those will all be over with. And so the the schizophrenic, he has that to look forward or she has that to look forward as well.
0: Awesome. Well, I want to close us off by inviting you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. If there is someone listening today who is actively engaged in counseling those who suffer from some of the same problems that we have been talking about today, but they feel unsure of how to best guide their counselee forward, what would you say to encourage this listener with the hope and help of Jesus Christ?
1: The Lord's bond servant must be able to teach, kind to all, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. As I said, if perhaps God may grant them repentance and they may come to an understanding of the truth, escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. As we seek to counsel folks who struggle, we need to be humble people and recognize that it is The Holy Spirit working in the heart of our counselee and in our heart that results in all meaningful change. And then in the life of your counselee, uh, the um, promises of Scripture will always apply. As Paul said, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away and new things are coming. Looking at the life of an individual over long periods of time, In the life of a believer, we generally see people up and down the curve, but continually moving closer towards uh, the goal of progressive sanctification. Don't get discouraged by what your counselee does today and their failures. I can remember once listening to a a fellow talk about how many times an individual comes into contact with a healthcare delivery system uh, for substance abuse before they get it, before they do better. And the number was 26, 26 times. And his contention was don't be discouraged by people who don't make it this time because you don't know what number you are. So always seek to offer biblical counsel for the problems that your counselee comes, counsel from scripture. Those would be the things I'd say.
0: Well, thank you so much for your words of encouragement and for taking time to talk about this brand new book with us today. It was a really insightful conversation, and I cannot recommend this resource more highly. So if you are interested in learning more about it and Dr. Hodge's writing ministry, you can scroll down in the show notes, click the link there, and that will take you to a page on IBCD's website where you can access all of that information in addition to the podcast episode I mentioned previously on Hope and Help for Bipolar Disorder with Dr. Hodges and us discussing his book, Good Mood, Bad Mood. Well, thank you so much again for joining us for the show today, and congratulations on coming to the finish line with this effort of putting the second edition together, and I pray that it's a blessing to those who read it.
1: Well, thank you for having me and give me the opportunity to talk about the book. i like you hope that it finds a place where it helps those who counsel and those who are looking for counsel.
0: Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.